Hey, it's Alex Pearson from On Point today on the podcast. Is it vigilante justice, stupidity, or will it actually lead to something good? We'll talk to a community group that is now taking, you know, action on their own with a lot of crime in their neighborhood. They've taken it to Instagram to try and put in preventative measures. We'll talk to a former NHL hockey player whose son was murdered last month. And he's desperate to find those responsible. So we'll talk about it with him. And Sam Cooper digs up a doozy about Chinese espionage and basic cyber warfare that took Nortel down. And well, where are we today? Enter Huawei. We'll talk about that in more busy, busy podcast today. So let's get to it. You just don't ever get the point. By getting through to the point, do you understand? There is a point. That point where enough is enough. Here's Alex Pearson on Global News Radio. Are you listening? So if Mr. Trudeau uh, thinks he can play some games with a new leader and force an election, we will be ready. But uh, I will also hold him to account. That's why I mentioned the return to committees uh, once the prorogation is over. Well, if the Prime Minister wants to play a game of chicken with an election... Aaron O'Toole says they're ready. That does not mean, however, they want to cause that election. Alex Pearson with you on this Tuesday, August 25th. And will we or will we not head into a fall election? I guess that is the question we will be wondering around around, uh, the next couple of weeks. But um, Aaron O'Toole holding his first official press conference as leader of the opposition, leader of the Conservative Party. He made it pretty clear today that... um, you know, where he stands, what he wants, how he wants to be viewed. Also, his call with the prime minister, he feels, is that uh, Trudeau wants an early election and uh, he'll be ready either way. And they talked on Monday and O'Toole made it clear that he wants the throne speech to address Western alienation. And he pointed out that the divisive politics is what is driving this country apart. I'm going to be a bit of a sea change for Canadians because, you know what, I respect people even when I don't agree with them. I want a mandate, not hiding my track record on all my voting records as being a pro-choice MP by being pro-LGBT. I also will stand up for, for small business owners, for Canadians from coast to coast. I want a strong mandate, um, and I'm, I'm not not afraid to fight for things I believe in, and I'm not afraid to respect people that have another point of view. That is why the Conservatives can win, when we respect one another in our coalition, when Canadians respect people in other provinces, even if they've never met them. That needs to be the return to politics. Okay, so right then and there in that statement, he says he's pro-choice. He was, It's on that record. And um, we haven't heard a conservative declare that very clearly. Will it stop 8,000 more questions from being asked on it? Goodness, no. Oh, no, 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 no. The attacks, of course, well underway. And just the same kind of tired attacks about, you know, Aaron O'Toole is a social conservative. He's got a hidden agenda. He's going to open up abortion, even though, you know, he just said I'm pro-choice. Uh, you know, he's cozying up to gun advocates. And and then we got this beauty today from Industry Minister Nav B- Navdeep Baines. We put forward a positive, progressive message investing in Canadians and their ideas. 
Uh, that's the tone and posture we plan to take uh, going forward. Uh, and it's deeply disappointing to see that uh, Aaron O'Toole is continuing to uh, follow the path of divisive politics of pitting one Canadian against another, one region against another, and as you've indicated, uh, muzzling scientists. Muzzling mm. muzzling scientists, yes. That's that's the other thing. Now he's going to muzzle scientists. Uh, got it? Look, if there's one thing the Liberals are very, very good at, it is playing identity politics. They created it. They water it. They nurture it. They love it. They go high. But what they do is get in the gutter. You know, they, the, the name calling. Everyone's a far-right racist. Everyone is alt-right. You know, look. Leslin Lewis just won the popular vote across this country. You know, does that not say anything? It should, because it should. It really should. But of course, she's a social conservative, so she's not quite the right voice for that community. But even O'Toole's, you know, slogan, take back Canada. Oh, God, that's got people offended. Again, it's a hidden agenda against immigrants. It's Trumpian. Uh-huh. So then why did Trudeau himself say it back in 2015? Not only did he declare Canada's back, he stated many, many times during the election that it was, quote, it's time to take Canada back from Stephen Harper. Because Stephen Harper took it somewhere. Apparently he took it on a vacation. I don't know. So, like, give me a break. It's a slogan. It's not even creative. And both sides use it to play to their base. So can we all just chill out and not make more of it than it is? I mean, O'Toole campaigned, O'Toole campaigned on his leadership on defunding the CBC. That is a magnificent idea. Will he do it? I mean, I hope he does, but I doubt it. So let's just stop with the hidden agenda crap. Because uh, this identity politics has made politics so ugly today that you can't even talk to friends about it. You can't have a conversation with people about it. You can't have opinions about it without being attacked. And we have real, very big issues facing this country right now. And sure, games are played in politics. I get that. But what we don't need is yet another election fought on identity politics. What we don't need is every press conference to have 18 questions on social conservative issues like abortion. And we will get that. And it's just, to me, it's lazy. It's just lazy. But... You know, you've got the liberals drowning in scandals, so they're going to have to deflect. And this is what O'Toole's going to be up against. So he needs to be able to cut through the noise. He's got to be able to do what Andrew Scheer couldn't. He's got to get his name out there and his message out. And once the liberal war room revs up the attacks, it is very hard to punch through that noise. But you look at the last two appearances he's taken, you know, he looks like he's pretty comfortable. He looks like he's going to portray himself as a regular guy. He gets the frustration of Canadians, but bottom line, he's got to have a clear message and he's got to make sure that that is the headline of the day and not about all the wedge issues. But this is kind of how he is seeing it. I have no famous name. I just fight for Canadians. And after the pandemic, with record deficits, with the challenges we face in the world, we need a fighter. We need someone who came from the middle class to serve Canada ethically and professionally at home and on the world stage. That is what Canadians will get with me. I think we're tired of a directionless, divisive, and ethically challenged liberal government. 
So I think, look, he's comfortable where Sheer was very awkward. I mean, Sheer never looked like he even wanted the job. And one thing we did get clear on uh, today, I mean, and, and O'Toole has always been, he's very hawkish on his approach to China. He made it very clear today he will not do business with that country that threatens our national security. So that's smart. That's a smart and good approach to take. And, and by the way, the timing's great because um, we got it much tougher on that issue. Um, but, you know, one of the other reasons, you know, that the liberals may feel emboldened in triggering this election is because new polling shows that they've got a very healthy lead over the conservatives. And apparently respondents see Trudeau as the most decisive, intelligent and charismatic leader, which tells me they only polled those who were up at the cottage in Muskoka. Yikes. The other thing uh, that happened and got confirmed late today, which I don't think should surprise any anybody, but uh, Dr. Leslin Lewis has confirmed she is, in fact, going to be running in this election whenever it should be. I don't know if we're going to have an election. I just don't know. The one who triggers it's going to look pretty bad. However, there's this feeling of, do you really want the Trudeau government to do the recovery of this? So it's a game of wait and see. And um, I mean, there will be election. I just don't know if it'll be September or if it'll be early spring. As far as the conservatives go, they want the scandals to be out and they want all the committees to do their thing and, and start the bleeding again. That way, those people in Muskoka who think he's charismatic and smart, they start to hear, oh, I don't know anything about this. Oh, ee, yuck, I don't like that. That was the message Premier Ford had on Monday for sex traffickers. And uh, his government's pledged over $300 million to stopping what has really become a cancer across this province. I mean, it's a Canadian-wide problem, but 70% of sex trafficking happens in this province with the average age of girls just 13. And generally speaking, it's those targeted who are vulnerable, mainly in Indigenous communities, maybe the LGBTQ communities. But... Um, there's also young high school, young college girls who are getting trapped in this life. You know, they think they've met their man of their dreams on the net, on the internet, only to learn after one or two dates, he is anything but that. And by then it's too late. So the premier's invested an awful lot of money to build not just campaigns of awareness, but it, but to also put in more supports and frontline services to actually get victims freed from captors and get them back on their feet. I want to bring uh, Julia Drydick into this conversation, executive director of the Canadian Centre to End Human Trafficking. Good to have you, Julia. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. It's hard to imagine in 2020 that this is such an enormous problem and we seem to be only tackling it kind of seriously now. I mean, what has taken so long? Part of the problem is that we really don't have strong data in terms of understanding the prevalence, but also what it looks like. So the data we have here um, is from Stats Canada is just around police reported incidents, um, which is really the only only the tip of the iceberg uh, when it comes to understanding uh, how human trafficking is is playing out across the country. Um, and without that data, we haven't really known how to make any interventions. So I think we're in a good place now um, to start building off of what we know and really understanding the problems that we can intervene correctly. Certainly. I mean, when we hear organized crime, I mean, this is a very big part of organized crime. It's not just drugs, but selling women or vulnerable um, young boys or, or young men uh, into the sex trade is a huge, huge cash cow for criminal elements. And that's why um, we have such a big problem of it. But what is it about Ontario specifically? Is there our roadways? Is it, is, is it our border with the United States? What is it about Ontario specific that 
makes it so um, such a problem. So there's a few ways to kind of look at that. Um, one of the reasons is that Ontario just has a higher population density compared to other provinces and territories. It makes up a larger proportion of Canada's population, um, and so we see higher rates of human trafficking here. Um, but it's also an economic hub. So as you mentioned, um, human trafficking and sex trafficking is about profit-seeking. It's about making as much money as possible. Um, and so where you have stronger economies and um, those market conditions, traffickers are going to try and access them to get as much profit as possible. Um, so it's happening in place, it's happening in urban and rural communities. Um, but as you mentioned, traffickers are also moving victims around to again access those different markets, um, but also to keep uh, victims isolated and confused um, and to prevent them from seeking out help. Why hasn't there been more, um, you know, awareness done about this. It is not a new, I mean, I've been reporting on trafficking for, for over two decades now, but, you know, we talk about having sex ed curriculums and all of these things to, to keep kids safe. This to me is a no brainer that when we're teaching kids about going online and computer use, that this is an area that they should be warning kids, especially young girls that, you know, you might be talking to a really handsome guy on the internet, but that that's not who you're necessarily talking to. And this is what can happen. Why hasn't that started yet? Um, you know, there's no good reason for why it hasn't started yet. Um, and, you know, we were uh, happy enough to see that there was some mention of human trafficking in the Ontario curriculum, but it does not go far enough. Mm -hmm. um, we really need to be focusing on prevention. So it's not just about awareness about what human trafficking looks like when you're in the middle of it. Um, but we need to be starting young and early in terms of how we talk, not just about online safety awareness, but also healthy relationships. Um, human trafficking happens because people are able to exploit um, the emotional vulnerabilities of different people. Um, and if we equip our youth with the tools to understand not only what unhealthy relationships look like, but what healthy relationships look like, um, then really we're focusing on uh, preventing human trafficking uh, before it starts. Right. And given the technology we hand to our kids at such a young age, it just seems uh, more parents have to be involved and start understanding that uh, you're, you're opening up your kids to a dark world that they don't understand. Um, because as you well know, Julia, once a young person is behind those closed doors with the person perpetrating this, uh, there there is no easy way out and some don't get out. That's correct. Um, and the trauma bond that can exist between traffickers right. and their victims are intense. Um, it can result in incredibly long-lasting psychological and emotional harm. Um, and the impacts of that trauma can manifest for years and years. And so I think a lot of people would be surprised to see this particular government, uh, you know, kind of going as far as they have. It's a lot of money. Is it the right approach? I think it's good that they've looked at tackling it from a bunch of different areas, but I will say that there's a very strong focus on law enforcement. Mm -hmm. um, and what we're seeing is that you just can't arrest your way out of this. Um, there are some really significant barriers to victims and survivors in going through the judicial process, and we've got yeah. really low conviction rates. Um, so in addition to just looking at um, how to catch the bad guys, we also need to be thinking about how we make our judicial systems more accessible to survivors so that they're not re-traumatized or stigmatized um, or dragged through a process where there's actually no um, access to justice in the end. Right. I mean, I think a lot of times when these uh, crimes are reported, you know, you see the, uh, the, the the photo ops, you see the drugs and the mounds of money, but you never actually see the face of these um, crimes. So you never actually see the victims. And I think that's why most people don't realize that they're, they're 
destroyed forever. I mean, they, they may get freed, but they're destroyed forever because then they have to go through the court system. They are unknown victims of these crimes and, and they get re-victimized. I mean, it's terrible if you've ever been in a court proceeding watching a, a sex assault victim having to relive all that. It's, it's very, very painful to watch. Um, and so, you know, I'm glad to see money's being invested in it, but I do think it is the campaigns telling truck drivers, hotels. It's not one of those things that it's just a one-stop approach. You need the schools involved. It's real community involvement that's going to stop it. Absolutely. And it's a collective action. It, it's got to be um, every part of the community and the nonprofit, private and public sectors working together on this. How long does it take a victim of this kind of crime to get back on their feet? It really varies person to person and everyone's story is really unique. Um, and so uh, I can't give you a definitive period of time. You know, often trauma can manifest for an entire lifetime, but that doesn't mean that their lives are over. Um, a lot of the survivors that we've worked with are resilient um, and they develop coping strategies so that they can reclaim their life even when they're still dealing with trauma. And um, as far as justice is concerned in this particular area, um, you know, again, I think it comes down to the sentencing and the, and the deterrent part of it that doesn't doesn't go nearly far enough. No, and it's so incredibly hard to prosecute or, or convict um, a human trafficking case. Often uh, traffickers will end up being convicted for related crimes, but not human trafficking specifically. Um, and uh, you know, it, it can be hard to prove in the court of law because, again, so much relies on the victim testimony. Mm -hmm. um, and many survivors may choose their own healing and well-being um, above going through the judicial system. Not to mention the fear can hang over them of maybe this person has others on the outside that will uh, silence me for good if I say anything. So that's, uh, you know, there's all sorts of variables at play as to why sometimes people don't want to go into the courts and deal with it. Uh, Julia, I appreciate your time on this and uh, giving us a bit of insight into how big this problem is and how much further we have to go in fighting it. I appreciate that. Thank you for having me. That is uh, Julia Dredick, uh, Executive Director over at the Canadian Centre to End Human Trafficking. Look, it's 2020. You know, uh, something that should be getting better seems to be going in the wrong direction. So, again, as Julia says, it is a community effort. It's just going to take everyone to get involved. Welcome back. So this next case, you know, it comes down to, you know, whether road rage was the motive behind the murder of a 20-year-old Binbrook man. And so far, that's the working theory behind who killed Brock Beck, who was stabbed multiple times and left to die alone in a driveway at a Binbrook home in the early hours of Sunday, July 28th. And Brock had been at a private house party with some friends. That's when police believe he was confronted by a group of guys in a white car who no one at the party knew, but they do believe there may have been some kind of road raid incident, incident with Brock earlier near Binbrook's small downtown. And then the next thing you know, there's a 16-year-old being attacked and injured, and Brock was then stabbed several times and left bleeding uh, to death. Barry Beck is uh, Brock's dad. You may know his name because he was a hockey player with the Rangers, Colorado Rockies, and the Los Angeles Kings. And Barry, I know that this is very difficult for you, so I thank you for your time because I don't think uh, a life in hockey ever prepares anybody, including a parent, for, for what you and, and your family have been through. Yeah, well, it's, been, it's, a, it's a big loss for our family right now. So we're obviously devastated about it and trying to get answers. And we sort of need to need help from the community of Binbrook 
to get a hold of the Hamilton Major Crime Unit with anything that they might have seen or known that particular night. And uh, so we're, we're not moving forward yet by any means. It's still fresh, and uh, we're continuing to cope with it. It's um, hard enough at the best of times to deal with this. You and your family have been dealing with this in the middle of a pandemic, which has obviously put a number of uh, barriers and uh, obstacles in your way. The police have, in fact, released a picture of a car um, in surveillance that they believe may be connected. Why do you think it's been so difficult to get information so far? Well, I think the police just have to be very thorough in the way that they're doing the investigation. So they're just going through the process and making eliminations. There's a lot of theories to begin with, and especially when you, uh, as a parent, start thinking about all the, the players who were involved at the house party that night. And so the police can't tell us too much right now. They possibly might have a direction but we just have to uh, uh, wait, and that is a very difficult thing to do for parents waiting for information. And there's no question. I mean, there were a lot of people around uh, at that party. They would have seen something. Has it been difficult getting that information to come forward? I mean, certainly there, someone or many people know something. It's just a matter of one of them going to the police. Yes, I think so, Alex. I think uh, I, you know, as I said, I... I talked with a, a few of the neighbors, and there wasn't a lot to see that particular night. And it is, as the police said, uh, a random act of road rage. The two parties didn't know each other at all. And um, so that's why we need help from the public to come forward. It could be in the, in the surrounding Hamilton areas. It could be further than that. We don't know. Um, but we just sort of have to sort of sit tight, wait for the investigation to unfold, and uh, the police will keep us updated when they get new information. I have to think that that's um, very difficult. I mean, in um, grieving not just your loss, but the violence behind the loss, um, you know, not knowing anything and not knowing if anyone's going to be held to justice, how has that uh, impacted you? Well, we know there will be justice at some point, so it's just when will that be, and that is a difficult thing for families to go through or wait for information, and there will be a lot of talk, and it won't lead anywhere. So that is the hard part that that sort of tears you up inside. So you have to learn as moving forward to, to manage that, and for me... Uh, living in Hong Kong, I got mm-hmm. to see my son twice a year, so I was a long-distance dad. And uh, so my memories are are good memories of my son. So that's what I think of when I think of him. But on that night, his blood was spilled on that driveway, and my blood is running through his veins. So it was mm-hmm. our blood on that driveway. So... That's the hard part is for the families is to come come to terms with that. You know, these stories are a headline to most people, but it's very personal. Brock Beck is your headline. Uh, what kind of kid was he? I mean, it's hard to call him a man. He was just starting out in life. And I, you know, 20 years old, it's just, 
it's so 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 young. But what kind of what kind of young man was he? Oh, he was a a, a caring, giving young man, and he had just graduated uh, from Yarmouth uh, University and was taking mental health and recovery. And he wanted to help people, and he wanted to help his friends. And just uh, thinking about that, 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 that's what we think about as him as an individual, as wanting to help other people. So that's what we will try to carry on with his legacy and his name in whichever way we proceed to do that, and uh, so that nobody forgets about him. If you could um, speak and say something to those who drove away that night and um, have yet to do the right thing, what, w- what would you say to them? Well, I'd tell them to come forward now um, and get this resolved for the, for the families. Like, for me, there will never be any closure. It's just, as I said earlier, how are you going to manage that for the rest of your life? So the first thing is we don't want to see another young person get killed. And mm-hmm. That's why we want to see them come forward or be caught as soon as possible. And um, so that will eliminate that. But in that surrounding area of Hamilton, there's already been a number of stabbings this year. And so I think the police are very focused on that and very diligent the way they go about doing their work. And uh, we trust them. And we try and work with them, try and help them any way we can. And now we need some help from others. And indeed, the uh, picture of that white car is uh, online uh, on our website. It's also on the the Hamilton Police website. So if you want to take a look at that, it's a fairly clear image of a white car that someone in a small town like that ought to know maybe who it's linked to. Um, Barry, I appreciate you very much joining us. I know that this has been very difficult for your family as well as yourself, but uh, I also know how important it is to keep these stories in the headlines so that uh, answers can come forward, especially at a time when people are not focused on on these small town stories and tragedies because everyone's so distracted by by the pandemic. Yes, thank you. Thank you, Alex. And, and our families appreciate that. And- Barry, our best with uh, with you, and we do hope that the next story that we at least can tell is uh, is that justice is now underway. I appreciate you talking to us. Thank you. You're very welcome. That's Barry Beck joining us, uh, living what uh, no parent ever expects to live through. And sadly, we just hear about too many of them. And if you've got any information, because someone knows something out there, and somebody saw something or heard something or there's rumors going on, the best thing and the kindest thing you can do for this family is get that information to police. Uh, So we'll continue to follow that. Well, is this ever a doozy of a scoop? And it comes to you from our Global News investigative team. It's the story of a Canadian jewel that really put Canada on the forefront of the tech world. And then, you know, had it reached its goals, Nortel would have been a world leader in fiber optics and controlling much of the world's internets. And yet instead... China, the government, put a stop to that systemically, uh, infiltrating the company, 
over a period of years and bringing Nortel to its knees through this relentless and prolonged cyber warfare that those in charge seem to have turned a blind eye to. And Sam Cooper has been investigating this story and he lays out the takedown of Nortel by this long-standing attack that either no one figured out, didn't care, and the Canadian government seems to have shrugged at. Sam Cooper is our leading investigative reporter with Global News, and he joins us now. This is quite a story, Sam. Thanks, Alex. It's um, It lays it all out. I mean, Nortel, it, it, you go back to 2004, Nortel gets its first warning that this telecom network's been breached, and they start tracking it back to Shanghai, and the execs I guess there's up to seven of them that were hacked, but they didn't do much about it. Why? Well, that's right. Brian Shields, the uh, cybersecurity advisor that discovered this, uh, found that this cyber, uh, you know, what he judged to be people with control of China's Internet, that is the leaders, the army, had just an insidious reach inside Nortel. They could send uh, data at any time, undetected, and they struck from the top, that is hacking into managers' emails. And uh, Mr. Shields, from his perspective, says that, you know, he laid all of this out in report in 2004, but uh, management was uh, uh, just very much focused on year-to-year profits, innovation budgets, and uh, in retrospect, no one would, would have too much fault with them because cyber uh, hacking was very new. And look, Western capitalism is based on keeping that company afloat. But he says, uh, you know, they totally dropped the ball in another way because they were getting these strong warnings. At the same time, mm-hmm. thesis was warning uh, Nortel's managers, not only are you compromised, but please be assured that uh, Agents from China are trying to compromise you. That is, you, the manager. They'll try to wine and dine you. They'll try to turn uh, you to their interests. And so, Mr. Shields and uh, my sources from from CSIS said that these warnings were totally ignored. It's partly a, a Western capitalism short-sighted thing, and it's partly a, a failure to detect espionage. And possibly there could be corruption in the mix. It is so crazy to go through the the timeline of events, you know, because this was over about a 10 year period where pretty much these executives did nothing more than change their passwords. But by then it was way, way too late because, you know, the Chinese were playing this long game of making sure that they were able to steal all of these trade secrets from this Canadian giant. Um, Was it done on Canadian soil by front groups or was this done out of China? Well, that's absolutely right. It was long term. It was multifaceted and incredibly focused. So to start with, we're not just talking about uh, proprietary innovation secret documents. We're talking about total visibility from a hostile foreign state on everything management was thinking, planning, doing. So uh, if you can imagine, you know what management wants to bid on a contract and how important Mm -hmm. it is to them, then that's just a stunning vulnerability. Uh, What was used in this attack, we found, uh, according to the sources, human espionage in Canada. That would be spies planting bugs inside, spies uh, compromising employees inside Nortel, students from China that are extremely smart and yet very cheaply hired PhD students stealing technology, sending it back to China. We have uh, managers from Nortel 
being wooed, wined and dined, but uh, by this network we've talked about, China's United Front. Uh, this would be uh, people that may appear to be business people or, or uh, community leaders. However, in some cases, our espionage agents, in some cases connected to organized crime, wooing managers from Nortel, inviting them to China. And uh, it looks like some bad things would have happened on those visits to China. Uh, there, there is a, allegedly a massive implantation of bugs in Nortel's headquarters. And so those are just a few of it's a multi-pronged attack, according to the sources, that, that really resulted in everything inside Nortel, including humans, being compromised. It's so insane. And then by 2009, um, you know, they had gathered so much uh, information about Nortel. It was then that this company called Huawei starts winning all these big contracts. And essentially, the government of China took full control over Nortel's operating systems. And now we're looking at Huawei, which is becoming or wanting to become the world's dominant player in the, uh, you know, of dominating the Internet and all things technical. Well, that's right. I mean, the experts say when you timeline this in retrospect, it, it, it fits so clearly what happened. And people will say, well, Nortel isn't the only one hacked. That's absolutely true. Uh, they, look, the FBI has alleged that Huawei itself was involved in uh, espionage targeting American companies. And, and yet Nor the experts say Nortel was much more the focus of China's government. One, because Canada had the lead in this uh, future 5G technology, and two, because Canada is a very weak, uh, weak mark in compared to the United States and, and now countries mm -hmm. like Australia. Therefore, it was not only the best fruit, but it was the lowest hanging fruit from a counterintelligence perspective. And uh, the experts say that, look, some people say management was very bad in Nortel. That caused the fall. Uh, but but most intelligence sources say, look, uh, it was China's government that took it down and Canada just didn't have the capacity to respond. Or the will. I mean, where was the Canadian government? This would have been during the years of uh, Chrétien and crossing into Harper. But wh where, why wouldn't the government have done anything? They would have known that this was going on. Well, absolutely. The sources say uh, by the time, well, in the late 90s, thesis is starting to warn uh, Nortel managers directly about this, uh, what looks like human espionage, very serious. When we get into the, the Harper government, uh, certainly it's, it's understood widely by, by very informed agencies in Canada that this compromise, this attack was happening. Um, but but some people say that cyber cyber hacking was still very new, and possibly mm -hmm. if we're talking about the Harper government, uh, maybe they were more focused on uh, the oil industry and the auto industry in terms of uh, companies, leaders that need to be protected. And uh, people still didn't know probably how how valuable Nortel was to the future. We knew that everyone yeah. had it in their stock portfolio, but still, it yeah. was probably underestimated how valuable that company was. No kidding. I mean, it's not new now, though, the cyber uh, threats from China. I mean, we're in 2020 and intelligence of the Five Eyes warning us, stay away from Huawei. And if if Nortel's not the canary in the coal mine, I don't know what will be, Sam. I do not know how much more warning our government needs to stop this and then not allow it to go any further. Because if they can do this to Nortel, they could do this. I mean, their goal ultimately, uh, correct me where I'm wrong, is to dominate and control and be watching everybody around the world. 
Well, absolutely. Uh, in some ways, that is spelled out in China's own high-level uh, five-year economic plans or 10-, 20-year plans. In 2025, they want to be the leader in artificial intelligence. And look, with 5G, we're talking about the Internet of Things, smart cities. So absolutely, yeah. Western intelligence says that not only does, does China want to be the business leader, but they will use the access to 5G to further their espionage goals. What does that mean? That means targeting any political leader in Canada that speaks against them. That means targeting Hong Kong Canadians that speak against China. It already means uh, suppressing populations inside China, uh, Uyghurs in Xinjiang. So, uh, the, look, every, every credible national security expert I talked to said no matter, the way, no matter what you believe happened to Nortel, it would be just unacceptable for, to allow Huawei into a 5G system because they're controlled by the Politburo at the end of the day. Yeah, well, it's a good thing that uh, Aaron O'Toole is very hawkish on China. It should be a head into an election moving forward. Sam, uh, a tremendous uh, scoop. I know how much work goes into these, um, but uh, an amazing scoop, and I appreciate your time on this. Thanks so much, Alex. That is Sam Cooper. And if you don't follow him, you should at Scooper Cooper on Twitter. He breaks some of the most important stories that are told in this country, warning about China's threats against uh, our well-being. That's your podcast for today. You can hear us, of course, live on point Monday to Friday, 6.30 to 10. Have a great day. I'm Alex Pearson.